All right, so here we go. Wise men, I love this saying. I first saw this, heard this early in my Christian experience. And it is this phrase, wise men still seek him. You heard that one? But interestingly now, as we look at the scriptures, Matthew is the only one of the four gospels, four gospel writers, who tells the story of the Magi. And as you know, Matthew puts a very heavy emphasis in his gospel on fulfilled prophecy. He is showing through this account that we will look at today that who Jesus is was so obvious that even Gentile priests from Eastern countries recognized him. So we're going to pick it up in Matthew uh, 2, verse 1. It's going to dive right in. You can follow along in your Bible or up on the screen, whatever you prefer. It's good to keep into practice, though, in finding the scriptures in your Bible, by the way. We're reading from the New King James today. So now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, you probably already know this, but it's pretty cool that the, the name Bethlehem uh, which we uh, also know as the city of David, because David was from there. The name literally means Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. And in John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And so even the name of the town that he was born in had and has prophetic significance because he was born in the house of bread. Now, this is in the days of Herod the king. This would be Herod the Great. He had sons that also bore that title. Herod was a title for the kings of Israel at this time. But he was really a pretender to the throne, if you will. He was an Idumean, which means he was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. Esau was the renegade brother of Jacob, a man who lived out his life in the flesh, who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. And King Herod was one of his descendants, so he was not part of that line. Jacob became the father of the 12 tribes. So Herod was a pretender to the throne. He was given his position by the Roman authorities, so he was basically a puppet king, if you will. He killed his wife, Mariamne, one of nine wives, by the way. I don't know how you manage that. Not all at the same time, but uh, he killed his wife, Mary Amney, and her brothers for supposedly plotting against him. So, like many autocrats, dictocrats, monarchs, he uh, was paranoid, fearful, and understandably so, because down through history, over and over again in various kingdoms, we find that uh, kings were often displaced by assassination. So I guess we can't be too hard on him for his paranoia. But he was constantly in fear of being overthrown. Another aspect of Herod the Great, he was only four feet tall. <laughs> uh, barely above munchkin status. And so to compensate... <laughs> He built magnificent structures, including the uh, new temple in Jerusalem. He took the very basic 
simple temple that was rebuilt. Remember, the original temple was destroyed. And then when the people came back from bondage in Babylon, from captivity, they rebuilt the temple, but they didn't have the resources to bring it back to the level of Solomon's temple. So it was a very simple, basic temple until Herod came along. And he decided, of course, he would have probably claimed he was doing it for the glory of God, but he really did it for his own glory. And so it was a magnificent structure that even the disciples uh, acknowledged uh, when Jesus was standing there with them, how amazing and incredible the temple was. And Jesus says, oh yeah, well, not one stone will be left upon another. And that's another prophecy that came to pass. When Titus, the Roman general, came in in 70 AD with his legions and destroyed the city and the temple. But let's move on. So we have... Jesus being born in Bethlehem, we have Herod the king, Herod the great, and then we have wise men or magi from the east. Now, some historians believe they were kings. We have that song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. The evidence is not overwhelming, but there is some historians believe they were kings. The other question is, were there really three? We don't know for sure. The idea comes from the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's where the idea that there were three, there could have been more. The name magi, as you might suspect, is connected to magic and magicians. But in ancient times, they were highly regarded as scientists, astronomers, astrologers, philosophers, and priests who had special insight into religious writings. And they're generally associated with the Medes, the Persians, and the Babylonians they were also at times called Chaldeans. You've probably heard that title. And that connected them to the area that Abraham originally came from. Abraham came from a place called Ur of the Chaldees in the Persian Gulf region. Daniel and his associates, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys, they were part of this caste of the Chaldeans in Babylon. Remember, Daniel became the chief uh, interpreter of dreams for King Nebuchadnezzar and for subsequent kings. And so Daniel and his associates were part of the Chaldean caste. In fact, Daniel was the head of it. And so it's quite likely that Daniel taught these men or their ancestors about the promised Jewish Messiah. It's obvious that they had foreknowledge of this coming Messiah. And so, they came to Jerusalem. They probably assumed that they would find the new baby king in the royal city. And evidently, as we'll see, they temporarily lost sight of the star. It guided them towards Israel. And they went to the capital city, the royal city, thinking they would find him there. Now, in verse 2, they're saying, asking, inquiring, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So the nature of their inquiry and their expressed desire to worship him obviously was a red flag to Herod. Their certainty regarding his birth and his station, king of the Jews. Notice, where is he who has been... You don't go up to the existing king of the Jews and say, hey, where is he who was born king of the Jews. <laughs> Herod did not want to hear that. And they said it with a certainty that wasn't a question. They knew. 
We have seen his star. Now, this was not a known body of light. Um, there is an amazing video about the star that you can find online. It's quite incredible, and it's astrologically correct. Quite interesting, quite informative. But this was a supernatural manifestation from God to guide the Magi. And as astronomers and astrologers, God knew how to get their attention. I don't know about you, but I experienced that in my own life. Uh, at a pretty early age, right around fifth grade, how old would I have been? Let's see. About 10 at the beginning of fifth grade. 10, 11. All of a sudden, and again, I would say God did this, but I began to cultivate a passion for music. I was approached by the band director and invited to join the school band, playing the baritone horn. At the same time, my parents got me my first electric guitar and amplifier for my birthday, and, and I just that became my all-consuming passion, music. God used that to get my attention because I ultimately... He drew me back to himself and I recommitted my life to Christ. I immediately began to write Christian music. And I would tell people when we get up to do concerts, I would say, I used to sing music that asked all the questions in life. Now I sing music that has the answers. And so, whether it's with the Magi, it was their scientific mentality as well as their spiritual training. They're training as scientists, astronomers, astrologers uh, that got their attention when this star appeared that wouldn't normally have been there. And when it says in the east, it means that they saw the star from the east looking westward towards Israel because Israel is west of that area where they lived in the Persian Gulf. So they saw the star from the east looking westward toward Israel. And when Herod, the king, heard this, then say, well, hey man, we want to, we're looking for the one that was born king of the Jews. Can you tell us where he's at? Herod was troubled or disturbed. And I would say that's putting it lightly, considering his course of action ultimately, as we'll talk about in a few moments. But not only was Herod troubled, this is where it gets really interesting, all Jerusalem with him. Now we know why Herod was disturbed because anybody born king of the Jews would be a threat to him and his rule. And then in most cases, the goal of the king is to pass on the rulership to his sons and their sons to create a dynasty, right? So we know why Herod was disturbed, but why all Jerusalem? Now a couple of things. First of all, from our studies in the Gospels, we know that this might be surprising to some, but Israel was not in a very good place spiritually when Christ came. One might think, well, surely the Messiah would come when there's a great spiritual awakening going on. Not at all. And that explains in part why they crucified him. But Israel was in a rather apostate condition. Obviously, there were some true worshipers there. Jesus found them and recruited them as his disciples. But overall, Israel was not in a good place spiritually. And so you would find attitudes just like ones we see in the world today. Don't rock the boat. What do you mean, king of the Jews? We've already got a king. Uh, things are going fairly well with Rome right now. We don't want to rock the boat. 
We want to keep the status quo, right? And certainly, the king, as well as the, uh, the Jewish spiritual leaders, if you want to call them that, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, as long as they played ball with this puppet king and with ultimately the authorities in Rome, then their, their bread would be buttered, if you will. They had an income. They had a position. They were, they were happy the way things were. And then you have others who simply say, I don't like change. Over the years, I've driven quite a few people nuts because I've kind of thrived on change. I like change. Not everybody likes change. And so at times, I've thrust change upon you guys with little or no warning. So I ask your forgiveness for that. Average person doesn't really like change. And so for all of those reasons, all of Jerusalem was troubled when they heard this news. Instead of rejoicing that their long-awaited Messiah was there, they saw the whole thing as a threat. And so even though the people were oppressed by the Romans, they were more fearful of something or someone they couldn't understand or perhaps control. And I'm afraid we probably are getting to that place in our world today where even though there's a great deal of oppression going on, most people, you know, there's that old cigarette commercial. I forget what cigarette it was because I never smoked, but I'd rather fight than switch, remember? The guy's got a black eye and they're trying to get him to switch. I'd rather fight than switch, you know? And then there was the old saying in the 60s when we were facing a severe threat from communism, which we now seem to have embraced, Better dead than red. Remember that one? Now it's, it's more likely to be better red than dead. And that's kind of the attitude they had. Better red than dead. Better to stick with the status quo than to go with the unknown. The only problem is you can really miss out when you take on that attitude. So they're there, the, the, the uh, magi, the wise men. They're seeking Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings. Verse 4, when he had gathered all the chief priests, Herod gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, most of the chief priests were from the sect of the Sadducees, the ruling class, the wealthy politicians. They would be like, oh, maybe some of the upper echelon people in your high church, very affluent, very powerful, uh, but they did not believe they were like the wealthy politicians of today, actually. They didn't believe in the supernatural. The Sadducees did not believe. They only believed in the five books of Moses. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in angels, any miracles. So pretty dry, dead belief system that the Sadducees embraced. And they did not accept any of the rest of the Old Testament, just the five books of Moses. So we have the chief priests, we have the scribes, or the teachers of the law. Uh, mostly from the sect of the Pharisees. Now, in, in uh, Jesus' day, the Pharisees, theologically, were very close to Jesus in their beliefs. They were just a lot more legalistic. But they definitely believed in the supernatural, which the Sadducees did not. But they were known in their day as... So the Sadducees were like the wealthy politicians. The scribes were the lawyers, which, need I say more... I don't mean to slam lawyers, but we know there's an awful lot of lawyers out there today that are always twisting the law. They, they've learned how to twist it, not uphold it. 
And that's the same thing with the, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. They were always twisting God's law to their own advantage and against others. Just like, sadly, some people today use the scriptures to beat others up, to browbeat them with the word of God. That's kind of what the scribes did. And so Herod asked them, because they were knowledgeable in the scriptures, where the Christ was to be born. Herod wasn't knowledgeable in scripture. He was basically a heathen, even though he was serving on the throne of God's nation. But he knew these men would or should know. They knew the scriptures. So he asked them, and in verse 5, they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. That prophet would be Micah. And verse 6 in Matthew 2 is taken directly from Micah 5, 2. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. And the reason that Micah said that, and Matthew quotes it here, is because Bethlehem was actually a fairly insignificant little town. Their big claim to fame was that was the hometown of David. But they're not the least among the rulers because, for out of you shall come a ruler with a big R, not just any ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. And we know that Jesus is the good shepherd. This is a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah who will shepherd God's people. And so the, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, they're telling Herod, well, according to the scriptures, he's going to come from Bethlehem. So verse 7, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. In fact, uh, I believe it's in the NIV, it says the exact time the star appeared. Herod wanted some very specific information because he had a plan up his sleeve. And he meets with the wise men secretly. After he calls all these other guys in, the chief priests, the scribes, and so forth, but then he goes aside with the wise men for a private meeting and what he intended to do to the Christ child, as you know, was to murder him. This was for his eyes only. And so his conversation with the wise men was in secret. Perhaps because they were foreigners, he wasn't as concerned about them figuring out what he was up to, but he did not want the chief priests, the scribes, and so forth to know. So he sent them to Bethlehem. Now that he knows that's where the birth was supposed to take place, and said, go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him bring, him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. We know that's baloney, right? He lies to the wise men, but the thing is, they're wise, and they're wise to Herod. We'll see that in a moment as well. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. So the star reappears. And again, it makes sense that the star disappeared because, again, God wasn't really interested in Herod finding out about this. But he did want the wise men to know. And so the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. So the star reappeared and led them to the exact house in Bethlehem, not the stable, Keep in mind, stars don't normally behave in this manner, do they? Again, this is a supernatural event. Now, when they saw the star, they rejoiced. 
exceedingly great joy. But again, my point, as they go to the house in Bethlehem, uh, Jesus was probably already about two years old at this time. This whole thing was a process. It took a period of time because notice it doesn't refer to him as a baby. It refers to him as a young child in verse 9. So there's a period of time that's elapsed. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They had a spiritual hunger. Interestingly enough, these magi who were not Jewish, they would have been considered Gentiles, even though um, ethnically they could have been very close to the Jewish people, being from the Middle East and the Persian Gulf, but they would be considered Gentiles, but they had a spiritual hunger that Herod and the Jewish rulers certainly didn't have. And so this is even prophetic in that having been rejected by the Jews, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, would reach out to a lost and dying world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so even the spiritual hunger, the desire of these wise men to find the king of kings, the king of the Jews, the Lord of lords, and to worship him indicates a spiritual hunger among the Gentile people that was spread all over the world. Verse 11, when they'd come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So again, they came into the house. What happened to the stable? After the crowds that had come to Bethlehem for the census had gone home, Remember, that's why everybody was there. That's why there was no room at the inn. Quirinius, the governor of Syria, who uh, apparently had authority over the people of Israel as well, called for a census. The Roman emperor, Caesar, wanted to know how many subjects he had throughout the world for various reasons, for bragging rights, for taxation, and so forth. And so all these people had gathered in Bethlehem. That's why there was no room at the inn. But they had all gone home now, and this a period of time elapses. They found a temporary lodging place once the town had cleared out. In Matthew 2, 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, because they went home by a different route, if you recall, they deliberately avoided going back through Jerusalem and having to give a report to Herod. When he found this out, he was exceedingly angry ticked off, you might say. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts. This is a lot like what happened to Moses. Remember the time of Moses when they killed all the baby boys? Because, again, ultimately behind all this is Satan himself. Satan knew that ultimately the Savior of the world would come through the Hebrews he sought to, to kill off all the male children at the time of Pharaoh, to kill off Moses so he couldn't deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then at the time of Christ, through Herod, Satan attempted to destroy the Messiah himself. He sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So... It would appear to be, at some point, between his birth and around two years of age, 
Jesus having been temporarily domiciled in Bethlehem. And then, as you know, Joseph was warned in a dream to take Mary and baby Jesus, or toddler Jesus, and flee to Egypt. And so, fortunately, by divine providence, before this slaughter took place, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were already in Egypt. So our manger scenes, complete with wise men. How many of you have one of those at home? We have one. They're really not accurate. (laughs) The wise men were not there in the manger in the stable. They came later on. They fell down and worshipped him. Not just honored. Now you could understand them bowing before a king, um, even a baby king, I suppose. But they went beyond just honoring him. They worshipped him. They knew who he was. They knew that not only was he the king of the Jews, that he was the very son of God. And you know what? God is willing to reveal that to anybody who truly wants to know. We've talked about this before, but I don't buy into this idea that I can't believe. I can't believe. You can. It's a choice. And as so many who have gone before me and others more prominent than me have said, Put God to the test. God, if you're real, show me. Make yourself known to me. Jesus, if you are alive and well, if you really are seated at the right hand of the Father, risen from the dead, then come into my heart and make yourself known to me. That's a challenge we can put forth to anyone at any time because we do have free will. We are able to make choices. These men received the supernatural revelation about who Jesus was and who he is. They also, not only did they worship him, they presented gifts to him. Hence, the modern-day practice of the giving and receiving of gifts at Christmas time. We know it's gotten way out of hand and it's been abused, but it does go back to this scene here where the wise men brought gifts to the young Jesus. And you know what? Another interesting aspect is that these gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, would, be, would help finance their escape and their sojourn in Egypt. The wise men brought them resources that they would actually use to carry them over while they were in Egypt. And the three gifts, again, I mentioned that... Uh, That's why some people think there were three kings or three wise men because of the three gifts. But these certainly were gifts worthy of a king. The early church fathers understood the gold to be symbolic of Christ's deity, the frankincense of his purity, the sweet fragrance that his life would be, and the myrrh, symbolic of his death because myrrh was used in the Jewish embalming process. And interestingly, there's a scripture in the Old Testament, a prophetic scripture, Isaiah 60, verse 6. The multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. What's missing from that verse? The myrrh, because this verse is about the millennial kingdom of Christ when he returns to rule on this earth, there's no myrrh. Because he's already died and risen from the dead. He's coming back not to die again, but to rule and reign. Isn't that cool? 
Let me read it again. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. This is speaking about the prosperity and blessings of Israel during the millennial kingdom. The dromedaries, which is another name for camels. I forget, one has hump, one hump has two humps. I don't know which is which. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. Prophecy of the millennial kingdom. No myrrh. The myrrh was the first time prophetically speaking about his future death. What do we see here from the story of the Magi? One, God in his sovereignty reveals himself to those whom he chooses. Just like the genealogy, if you go back and study the genealogy of Jesus, you've got some pretty funky people in there. You've got prostitutes, harlots, so forth. Rahab. You've got um, Bathsheba, and uh, you could probably blame David a lot for that situation, but she also participated. Nonetheless, God often uses the most unlikely candidates. He uses the foolish things, or people in this case, pagan Gentiles, to confound the so-called wise, the, the scribes, the chief priests, Herod himself. 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So if you consider yourself foolish, then praise God and thank Him for it. Because He uses the foolish things. He chooses the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. You remember the, uh, the disciples? They were considered like hillbillies. They were from the region of Galilee, that was kind of like, um, you know, country bumpkins. And they were not officially educated in any recognized school of ministry and so forth in Jerusalem. And that was another thing that really upset the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all those Jewish rulers, leaders, that these are unlearned men. And yet they were blown away by the spiritual wisdom, knowledge, and insight that they possessed because they received it from God. And even Jesus, who was rejected, he could talk circles around them. We all know that, right? But he didn't go to one of their schools. He wasn't trained by their rabbis. But, excuse me, I'm sorry, but when you're the son of God, you don't need that. Right? So, again, and you've probably experienced it in your own life. People that you thought... Oh man, I don't think that person will ever come to Christ. That person's never going to get saved. They're a lost cause. They're hopeless. And the next thing you know, they're born again and on fire for God. Most unlikely candidates. And you might even look at your own life and say, yeah, I was a pretty unlikely candidate as well. Another thing to point out here as we move towards our conclusion. Now don't be worried. A lot of times when the pastor says in conclusion, he goes for another 30, 40 minutes. I'm not going to do that today. Number two, number two, it's not how much information you have. The chief priests and the scribes, Herod turned to them for answers because they were supposed to have all the answers. It's not how much information you have, it's what you do with it. Let me make this point. How many Bible verses do you need to hear to get saved? I only know of one, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
My friend, do you realize if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you can receive the precious gift of salvation, of eternal life? You only need one verse. You don't need to be a Bible scholar or a theologian to come to know God. These men knew the scriptures in their entirety. Well, the Sadducees only accepted the five books of Moses, but the Pharisees, they accepted the entire Old Testament, and yet they didn't recognize their own Messiah when he showed up. And it reminds me of America today. I would suspect, I don't know the exact statistics on this, but I bet we have billions of Bibles in this country. We have 350 million people, you know, and most people, it may be diminishing today, but historically most people have had at least one or two Bibles in their homes, even if they don't go to church, even if they don't profess belief in Christ. You've, we've got Bible bookstores, we've got online, we've got secular bookstores that carry Bibles and Christian literature department stores, libraries, motels. You've got DVD, Bible on DVD and CD. Now you've got faith-based motion pictures. You've got all the churches. The last count, I don't know how many there are now, but the last count I heard for Albuquerque was 450 churches. Could be more now. There are some that have closed and new ones that have opened. But when you look at all the availability of all the Bibles, all the information regarding God, Regarding Jesus Christ, millions of Americans, again, sadly, it's probably not as many as it once was, especially with these younger generations, but nonetheless, millions of Americans and others all over the world know the story, don't they? There are two times a year when the whole world is exposed to the gospel. One is Christmas. You turn on your TV, there are worship service, masses, Christian Christmas celebrations going on all over the world that are broadcast over TV and internet, right? The other time would be Easter Resurrection Day. And so I'll go beyond millions. I'll say billions of people have been exposed to the message. So it's not about how much information you have. If that were the case, I would think just about everybody on the planet would be born again based on the amount of information that's gone out. And Jesus predicted and prophesied in Matthew 28 that the gospel would go out to the whole world prior to his return. And guess what? Because of all the resources we have today, all the media we have today, that by and large has been fulfilled. And yet we still have literally billions of people who don't know Christ. We have seven and a half billion people on this planet and if we were to be generous and say, hey, maybe if you look at the parable of the sower and the seed, maybe 25% of the world's population are born-again, true born-again believers, that leaves billions not saved. So, some people seek knowledge for knowledge's sake. The Apostle Paul wrote, knowledge puffs up. It'll make you prideful, arrogant. Have you ever known anybody like that? On the intellectual level, they're proud of how knowledgeable they are, how much they know. They like to throw it around. But more important than how much you know is who you know. Do you know God? Do you know Jesus Christ? Final point this morning. The Magi were on the lookout. They were seeking God, which the Bible clearly encourages. 
And so when the sign came, they immediately responded, as would the disciples some 30 years later when Jesus had grown up and launched his public ministry. There should be no surprise that those 12 men immediately dropped their fishing nets, walked away from their tax collecting tables, and all of their other vocational pursuits. They walked away and began to follow Jesus immediately. That's an indicator that they were truly seekers of God. And when God came along, they recognized him. This was true of the Magi as well. And so three things, the Magi's response to the revelation of Jesus as king was to first of all seek him out, Second Chronicles 15, 2. And when he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. A lot of people get mad at God. Where were you when I needed you, God? Yeah, but are you with God? Or do you only expect him to show up when you're in trouble? You see? It says here, the Lord is with you while you are with him. We talked about it last Sunday. Draw near to God, number one, resist the devil. Number two, number three, he will flee from you. But have you drawn near to God? Or are you just out there doing your own thing and just expecting him to show up when you need him? The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. So they sought him. They didn't just hang out over there in the Persian Gulf. Well, maybe when he grows up, he'll come and do a tour of our region. No, they went and sought him out hundreds of miles. That's another reason why Jesus was probably one and a half to two years old when they got there. It's a long journey. They had to stop off in Jerusalem to get directions. That's another thing. Sometimes people are stubborn. They don't want to ask for directions. I recommend you do that. So they sought him out, and then they humbly bowed before him in worship. Not just an intellectual acknowledgement. And that's where a lot of people get confused. There are a lot of people out there that on the intellectual level, they might agree with you. Yeah, you know, I think... You know, God probably is real. Jesus probably is his son. But it never transfers from the head to the heart. And in the Bible, there's a direct connection. But that information has to get transferred from your head to your heart. There has to be a transformation of your heart as well as your mind. So they bowed before him in worship. Luke one fifty two. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. That's a clear teaching of the Bible, folks. I wish more people could get a hold of that. God resists the proud. And see, the world tells you you need to be prideful. You need to, you know, you need to have all this self-esteem and you know, just look in the mirror and, you know, doggone it, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and people like you. <laughs> Stuart Smalley. The world is always going to tell us the exact opposite of what God says. Do you know that? He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with being lowly, being humble, not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. God can work with that person. And he can give you a, a godly, holy confidence that comes from him. 
where you know it's not you, it's him, but you can be confident in the Lord. And he can use you. He can bless your life. He can raise you up. He exalts the lowly. But he has to take the prideful down a few notches because he can't use a prideful person. And so we see the humility. These wise men, they were wise. They were scientists, astronomers, astrologers, priests, highly educated. But they humbly bow before this little boy in worship. And then finally they gave him gifts. One might ask the question, what do you give the God who has everything? Romans 12.1, I beseech you, Paul writes, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. What do we give God? We give him ourselves. What did he give us? He gave us his son, Jesus Christ, right? What's the gift that we can give God? Well, he doesn't need any of our material resources, that's for sure, although we can show our love, dedication, and commitment to him by giving to the ministry, the work of the ministry, the local church, and so forth. But above all, we need to give him ourselves as living sacrifices. And, and Paul said, that's just your reasonable service. That's just only makes sense. That's common sense that we would give ourselves to God as even as he's given himself for us. A living sacrifice. And so again, it goes above and beyond just simply acknowledging him. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. The evidence that we really know him and belong to him is that we present... Notice it says bodies. You might think, Oh, just the Spirit, no. And some people think, well, you know, I have a lot of nice, wonderful thoughts about God. But the vehicle by which we operate on planet Earth is what? It's our bodies, right? Whatever it is we imagine in our hearts and minds to do, it takes our physical bodies to carry those out. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that we are not, own, we are not our own, we're bought with a price, and therefore we're to glorify God with our bodies. And there's a disconnect with some people where they think they can do whatever they want with their bodies as long as their hearts and minds are fixed on God. It doesn't work that way. If your heart and mind is fixed on God, it will manifest in your physical activities, will it not? And if your heart and mind is not fixed on God, then your physical activities will take on a different nature. So they sought him out, they humbly bowed before him in worship. And that's why a lot of people struggle with coming to Christ. You have to humble yourself. You have to confess your sins. You have to acknowledge and admit before God that you're a sinner. And you have to repent. You have to say, God, I want to turn go the other way. Please help me. I want to be a follower of Christ. I want to turn from my life of sin and live my life for God. You've got to humble yourself. And not everyone's willing to do that. They want to justify, they want to rationalize. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I've never murdered anybody. Really? Because Jesus said, if you thought it, you've done it. I've never committed adultery. Really? Jesus said, if you thought it, you've done it. Therefore, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? There is none righteous, no, not one. You've got to humble yourself and admit it. And it cuts against, it goes against the grain, like I said, of everything we've been told and everything we've been taught growing up. You're wonderful, you're special, 
you're different. No, you're not. You're just like everybody else. You were a sinner in need of a Savior. We need to acknowledge that. We need to recognize. So they sought him out. They humbled themselves. And they gave him gifts. And again, as you become a believer, as you are born again by the Spirit of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and begin to learn how to be a follower of Christ, how to walk with God, then yeah, you will be giving of three key elements. Your time. Oh, I just don't have time for God. I don't have... Well, I hope you find time for God, because He sure found time for you. Time and energy. Oh, I'm just too exhausted to go to church. Really? What were you doing last night? I'd rather see you here yawning and half asleep than not to come at all. Time, energy, and money. Okay, those are the three key elements that we're able to offer up to God in service of Him. But it all starts with that big gift of yourself. Offering yourself up to God as a living sacrifice. Let's stand. Father God, this morning we thank you for this passage in Matthew and the amazing example of the Magi, the wise men from the East. Lord, we would do well to follow their example. And I suspect most of us here today have done that to one degree or another. We were going through life seeking God, whether we knew it or not. And then having found him, but it's really a case, Father, of where we seek you until you find us, because Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. We found you, you found us, and then, Lord, we did the right thing. We humbled ourselves before you in worship, and then we offered ourselves up to you as living sacrifices. Lord, and to whatever degree that that's not true for anyone here today, Lord, there may be some need to backtrack, to back up, to start from square one and to recommit, rededicate, make a fresh start, do it the right way. And I pray for anyone, Father, in that situation that you'd help them today to totally yield their life over to you. Lord, if there's anyone who's never done that, what a great time of year to make that decision, to receive the precious gift of forgiveness of sin, salvation, eternal life, through Jesus Christ, who was born into this world 2,000 years ago, to be our Savior. What a great time to receive that gift of salvation. So I pray for anyone who hasn't done that, that they would do that this very day. And Lord, for all of us who have, help us to examine, reevaluate our hearts and minds today. And make sure, Lord, we're on track here, that we're, we've been seeking you. And we know that's not something that stops once we're saved. We need to seek you every day of our lives to draw near to you, as we talked about today, and to continue to humble ourselves before you, never getting puffed up or prideful or thinking that we've got it all figured out, we've arrived. Lord, we know that'll never happen in this life. It's an ongoing process of constant uh, spiritual growth. Sometimes we take two steps forward, one step back, but we need to keep moving forward. It's an uphill climb. But we know you'll give us the strength we need to continue to climb uphill until we reach the top, we reach the pinnacle. We stand before you, we see you face to face, and we are forever then in your presence. Thank you for sending your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, Father. Thank you so much, God. We praise you, we thank you. And Lord, I lift up everyone now this morning. If you have a prayer request, just raise your hand. Whatever it might be, God knows. Lord, we lift up all these that have raised their hands. There's probably some more out there with health issues. We pray for healing, deliverance from physical sickness and affliction.
Lord, whether it's a very small thing or a very large thing, we're thankful, God, that it makes no difference to you. You have authority over the whole universe. You have authority over the elements. You have authority over our bodies. We ask that you would curse sickness, Father, within us and deliver us from sickness. Again, we pray for those right now struggling with COVID, that you'd pour out your healing upon them. Lord, we pray for those who may be struggling financially. This is a difficult time of year to be in financial straits. We pray that you'd provide, take care of each one, provide resources, provide income, provide jobs. Lord, and we'll be quick to give you all the glory for that. Lord, we pray for those with emotional, mental issues, stress, anxiety, fear, worry, doubt. Lord, that you would pour out your spirit upon them and deliver them. Lord, you said you came to heal the brokenhearted. You came to set the captives free. Lord, we need that release, that relief, that deliverance. We thank you for your wonderful, precious promises. Help us to take hold of them, to believe them, to trust you. Lord, we need that, that strengthening of our faith that can only come from you, Father. We don't want to be double-minded. You said the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Help us to be single-minded, to be stable, to be focused on you, fixed on you. And we pray for your help in every area of our lives, Father, for the, the emotional, mental issues, the uh, job, finance issues, health issues. Lord, and finally, relationships. Lord, we know, we've seen another manifestation during this pandemic of many damaged and broken relationships. We pray that those could be healed in the mighty name of Jesus and that you would help us whenever possible to be peacemakers, to be the initiators, the instigators, the inaugurators of healing of relationships. And we pray especially at this time of year that those relationships could be mended and repaired so there can be joyful celebrations with family and friends, that marriages can be healed and restored, as well as other relationships, Father, between father, son, mother, daughter, and so forth. We thank you and praise you. We do offer ourselves up to you, Lord, as living sacrifices, and we recognize this is our reasonable service of worship. This is just what we need to do, what we ought to be doing, and we choose to do it. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.